Blackbird episode number 52. My name is James, and today I am happy to bring to you a conversation I had with Sarah Thompson. Sarah is a homeopath who I met through the Tom Woods Facebook and now MeWe group, and she just has fascinating things to say. That's pretty much it. I've been in the kind of planning stages of a course that I'd like to release one of these days, and I posed a question in the Tom Woods group and a couple of other online communities asking for advice that people would give to a young person who is just getting out of college or maybe hasn't even gone to college and doesn't want to go to college, but they want to get their stuff together. And I think I specifically worded it something like, how would you help a young person lower their time preference? Sarah had a really cool answer about loving yourself, which nobody else, obviously, this is this is libertarian circles we're talking about, nobody would think of that first. And so that unique answer spurred on a pretty good conversation in the chat. And then uh, I found out that she practices homeopathy, which is something I don't know anything about. So I wanted to dig into that a little bit more. So I asked her to come on the show. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation and maybe you'll learn something and be inspired by it as well. Before we get started, let me tell you again about Football Insider Edge. You know, NFL season is right around the corner. If you love playing fantasy football or if you're like me and are absolutely hopeless at it, either way, I have found for you the best resource to help you with research. It's called Football Insider Edge. Whether you're a season-long player, you're focused on DraftKings and FanDuel contests, or you just like to make the occasional wager, Football Insider Edge will provide you with research, tools, and in-depth analysis to take your game to the next level. With their proprietary model, matchup charts, and award-winning content, the team at Football Insider Edge have devoted themselves to educating their subscribers, helping them improve their play, and in a few special moments, win life-changing money. The team at Football Insider Edge is proud of the community they've built through frequent interaction with their clientele via Slack, and they take great pride in helping others achieve the goal of becoming better fantasy football players. For listeners of this show, they're offering a 20% discount on any monthly or full season plan. So if you're a player of fantasy football or just want more information, head over to footballinsideredge.com. And when you make a purchase, be sure to use offer code BLACKBIRD to get that 20% discount. Once again, that's footballinsideredge.com and use offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout. And with that, here is my conversation with Sarah Thompson. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Hi, thank you. I'm so psyched to be here. Yeah. So I think we met in the Tom Woods group and actually haven't interacted a ton. I don't, I don't recognize your name. I just saw you in the MeWe group posting some cool comments and things mm-hmm. like that. So I wanted to interview you. Uh, and why don't, you know, before we get started, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. And kind of talk about where you're coming from and things like that. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so that is where we met. And the reason that I am over there is because... I felt such a need last year for a community that wasn't gaslighting me all the time. Like I (laughs) felt, and I felt from the start, like from last March that I knew I could trust myself and that what was going on wasn't right. But it gets on you being just 
beaten on all the time. Mm. So that's how I ended up over there. And, um, you know, and it's fun to talk to people without facing that. So I'm 44. I live in Maine. Uh, My profession is as a classical homeopath and shamanic practitioner. So I do healing work in that vein, which is um, holistic and individualized and deals with fundamental principles of health and healing. And so it feels very in alignment with this idea of being driven by principles and having that touchstone of how to navigate the world when the sands are shifting. And I, so I have a, I'm certified as an internationally certified homeopath and as a, by the, um, as registered uh, in the society, American society of homeopaths. And also in the Keto tradition, I'm initiated as a pump homosaic in the um, tradition of the Peruvian shamans. So that's my business. I'm also a mother of two kids who are unschooled and have pretty much always been that's awesome. born at home. Yeah. So that's my, that's me in my little world. <laughs> so you're a real life hippie. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I started out in finance. I graduated um, from college in like 2000, I guess. And I wanted to go into finance. So I had grown mm-hmm. up with this idea that I'm fascinated by economics and economics drive free markets and free markets are most uh, purely represented by uh, the stock market. And so that's what I want to do with my life. And I was very focused on that and I graduated and I got a job as an equity analyst. And I thought, that is not what's happening here at all. And I got really disillusioned. And then after September 11th, which, you know, was a, I mean, there was very clearly an attack on the finance industry. I was Mm. in my office talking to people who were um, in the trade centers the day before who were on those upper floors. And I thought, and, but then the reaction was so hysterical and bigoted. And I was like, I don't think this is home. Yeah. And so I left and I became a gardener <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I ended up where I am now. So it's like, I am a hippie and I'm not kind of, you know. So how did you end up in holistic health? So I ended up in holistic health because I was, so when I had um, my older son, who's 15 and a half, I had him at home. I knew that I wanted to have this more natural lifestyle, but I wasn't real focused on it. I hadn't done any study in it. I was just Mm. eating well, living in the country. That was good. In 2010, uh, my second son was born in January of 2010. And then I was diagnosed that summer with acute myeloid leukemia, which is a very fast moving type of blood cancer. And my first reaction to that was very dogmatic. I was like, I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to find a holistic way to manage this. And after about a week of that, I was sitting at the kitchen table with my husband and I said, look, I'm not going to die. And he looked at me in tears and he said, can you promise me that? And I thought, if I, I can promise you that, yes. But in order to do that, I have to let go of my preconceptions about how this is going to work. And I checked myself into the hospital 
and I went through conventional treatment. And I came through conventional treatment with flying colors, and that was great. And then a couple of years later, I relapsed. And when I relapsed, I had to go through a bone marrow transplant. So we're talking the most intense, high-tech kind of modern allopathic medicine you can imagine. And the scorched earth, mustard gas, chemo, and the whole thing. And I'm doing this but with this bias about holistic medicine. And that it was during that process that I got linked up with a homeopath. And what the homeopath helped me understand was that there is a deeper dynamic to susceptibility to disease. It's not about uh, the idea of this herb or that herb or this juice or all those things that are often naturopathic approaches to disease still is looking at, well, what's this mechanical system? Thinking about it in a more dynamic way, but still, what is this mechanical system? And what homeopathy showed me was that, no, this is a spiritual system and it has physical manifestations. It has mental and emotional manifestations. It has spiritual manifestations. And if you can flip that switch that turns on your own internal healing drive to address whatever that deeper thing is, and we don't have to know what it is, every, all the dominoes fall downstream and you, and, and you get there's a mixed metaphor for you. All the dominoes fall and you get a, a, a fuller picture of healing that is not just an absence of that disease, but um, a truer alignment with what you're here to do. And so that changed my life. And so then I studied to be a practitioner and that's a fairly intensive program of study and it really never ends. But I've been in practice for several years and I practice part-time because I'm my kids are still 15 and 11. Nice. So what is it like to be like the, would you consider your clients or patients? What, what's the word that homeopaths use for the people who come to see them? They use both, but I prefer clients. And I think that's my own triggers about sure. being in the medical system and wanting to make sure that it's always a parody, that it's always an equal. It's like, think of me like your accountant. I'm a specialist in this thing. Yeah. So what's it like? I don't know. Why would someone come to a homeopath in the first place? People come to homeopaths for every reason, but the number one thing that I hear is something along the lines of, the doctors are telling me that nothing is wrong, but I know it's, I'm not okay. Or I have this complex picture of symptoms and the doctors are telling me that I have to live with this forever and I don't believe that. It always comes down to, I'm not getting what I need from the medical system for any variety of reasons, which is fine because there's, everybody's got a niche. But sometimes I think what happens in conventional medicine is that there's this incredible arrogance about everything to do with health and healing is our niche. And it's like, no, you have a niche that you're really good at. But when you get out of your you know, out of your core competency, then you're not serving people. And so I'm careful about that too. I'm not a surgeon. Don't come to me with that problem. Um, but come to me with autoimmune. Come to me after you've had treatment for a disease and that's, you don't feel good yet. 
And that looks like a complete holistic healing experience where I'm sitting down with a client will come to me and we're sitting down initially for two hours. And people are usually getting a chance to talk about their experience of disease in a way that they never have had a chance to talk about before. And I'm listening without prejudice. That's my job is to just hear and to ask the kinds of questions that will elicit uh, the full picture. Um, Because people don't think about what those can, lots of people will think my symptoms are connected, but it's very hard to, you can't see yourself in the mirror, you know? Mm -hmm. And so my job is to just not lead them anywhere, but see what they say. And then I sit down with those notes. I analyze that. I come up with a single remedy at a time. And um, then we follow up. I support that with follow-up care and with my other shamanic work. What's your shamanic work look like? Are you doing ayahuasca ceremonies or or what is it? I am not trained in that. My mentors are, but I haven't gone through that kind of training. So my work is in the energetic realm of leading journeys and working with chakras and working with kind of core delusions and core questions. I think of the realm of the shaman as, and the realm of the homeopath for that matter, and as the realm of narrative analogy and metaphor, because all language really is those things. We can't say what the thing is. We can only speak around it with words. And so that's how uh, I think the shaman is able to hear the words and call on, just call on those analogies and metaphors to bring in the healing without having to be in charge of that process, because that would be arrogant. I'm not in charge of that process. I'm a conduit for it. Do you find that the people in the sort of natural medicine or homeopathy community or whatever have responded the same way as the rest of the culture to COVID or has it been different? And the reason I ask, I go see a chiropractor and Mm -hmm. he has fogged over his windows to his clinic and put a sign up on the door that says, look, if you don't wear a mask in here, we're going to assume you have another medical condition and Mm -hmm. just don't worry about it. He fogged up the windows because the state chiropractic board will come and like peer in his windows and make sure everybody's doing it. Because the the state organization that regulates the chiropractic field just drunk the entire (laughs) jug of Kool-Aid. Yeah. So so I'm wondering, uh, is that in your field, is that common? Yeah, so I would say that all across the natural uh, and holistic healing modalities, the response has been very different um, to what has happened in the mainstream. And for a couple of reasons. So part of that is that there are these two kinds of concepts in medicine and healing. And one is materialism and one is vitalism. So the materialist concept is that you have the body as a machine. And if you can picture, I think there's a, a very famous painting, and I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's by Jan van Eyck, of the physician uh, working on a cadaver, and um, he's he's cutting apart the hand and looking at all of the different pieces, this the incredible machinery of the hand and all of the ligaments and bones. And that's a very materialistic thing to think that you can sit down with a corpse and take apart all the pieces and be like, okay, well, now we know how this machine operates. And so we will make little tweaks. And, you know, when we see it in a live person, that's a materialistic idea. The vitalistic idea is, well, the corpse isn't alive. 
what is the dynamis that makes something alive? That's the thing that's underneath. And the material, the mechanics, they matter. They give us all the information that we have access to because we can't see anything other than that. They give us all the information that we have access to, but they're only pointing to the thing that is that needs to be cured. They are not the thing. And so, again, in the realm of analogy and metaphor, you, you get to that thing. And holistic medicine works on those different levels using material tools, but trying to access what's deeper. And so I think for the natural healing community to watch what was happening with COVID and say, you don't ever live in isolation from pathogens and you don't, this idea, like if, if, if masks were going to keep us healthy, we'd be born with them. Like that's not we, how would we suddenly discover that our evolution was totally wrong for disease mm-hmm. a year and a half ago? And so I think that there was this very different feeling. And then obviously, when all of the sources that you trust are sidelined and censored and called lies so that the, uh, I, the whole conversation can be boxed into certain sources, if you're on the other side of that, you're like, it's like when you read an article about something you know about in the newspaper and you think, well, they got that wrong. So how can I trust, <laughs> yeah. you know? And I mean, I'll preface that by saying, of course, that any one of these things I say is like coming from somebody wiser and I've picked it up and synthesized it so that I don't have to be careful about attributions because assume they're there. I heard that from somebody else. <laughs> but it's a great it's a great point. It's like, well if you know that they've lied to you about one thing, what else are they lying to you about? Why do you think so many allopathic physicians have have fallen for this so hard? I was at my doctor's, it was just my annual physical. And mm-hmm. I mentioned to my doctor that I was at the gym on the treadmill and I I pulled my mask down to catch my breath because I was just basically about to fall over. Mm-hmm. And so the gym manager walked by and yelled at me. He, he was like, you got to pull your mask up or you can't, you can't be on the treadmill. Mm-hmm. And I told my doctor about this. And, you know, I mean, I was recounting it as kind of a humorous anecdote. Mm-hmm. And his response was, well, it was probably all in your head. <laughs> yeah. Like the idea that, the, the idea that a, that a mask soaked with sweat would restrict my breathing is all in my head is absurd to me. But that's what apparently the doctors believe. And, and yeah. I don't understand that. Why do you think that happened if they know better? <laughs> well, let me start by saying I don't know. So I'll speculate, but I don't know. Mm. I think that we're, I mean, we're all in some kind of environment of, we'll have some kind, some levels of delusion in whatever environment we're in. We're living in our own realities to some mm. extent. And it is incredibly painful to be in profound dissonance with your culture. And so I look at what's happened in the medical schools and the hospitals and I don't, you know, the, I feel like a lot of things probably changed with the HMOs in the eighties. I was just a kid then, but certainly it felt like the whole nature of medicine changed back Mm. then. And the, patient totally stopped being the client and the insurance company became the client or corporate became the client. And so I think that it's like, there's this need to conform because to not conform is 
uncomfortable. And I know nurses and doctors who are not okay with the paradigm right now, and they're getting prepared to lose their jobs. And it's hundreds of people just where I am alone. Who's going to go into medical school? Who's going to go to nursing school that has a different point of view if they know that's what they're going to be up against? So I think we protect ourselves with our thoughts, and that is a way to do it, to buy the party line, because it's really uncomfortable to be outside of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess it does take a lot of courage to kind of, and a, a lot of risk too. Yeah. For that matter, to sort of question the orthodoxy as it exists today. Yeah. So that, that makes sense. I wish that he hadn't told me it was all in my head because it made me want to switch doctors. But so I as a homeopath, so that's different from naturopathy where yes. they basically try to replace conventional medicine with herbs and vitamins and breathing and moving to Arizona for emphysema and so on. Right. Well, yes. Do you consider yourself a partner with the healthcare industry or like a replacement for it or, or what? I consider that all forms of medicine and healing modalities are complementary to the individual's healing imperative. So I think that I'm working alongside the client. Mm -hmm. If a conventional doctor is also working alongside the client, then we're working in alignment and we're all part of the same team. If a medical doctor or another kind of practitioner is operating from the perspective of, I'm in charge of this person's healing process and I know what's best for them, then they're not partnered with that person. And I don't think that healing, true healing comes from that place. But I do think, and I will say this, I do think there's something to the cultural context of the medicine of your people, whatever it is. So I know many oh. people in my life for whom going to that MD, going to the ER, getting all the shots, getting all the things, that's the thing that makes them, that's what they think of as healing. So it works better for them than it works for me. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't work on me at all. But this was something I went through when I was going through the process of identifying what was going to be my healing path when I was diagnosed with leukemia, which was like, well, traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurveda in a clinic in India, like none of this is the medicine of my people and I don't know how to relate to it. So the cultural context of that also matters. And I don't know what that means, but I know that I live in this cultural context of medicine. And so I, I work alongside with it, but I want to see it respect the client because that's, that's who's going to heal. So when you propose Peruvian shamanic healing methods, mm -hmm. that's not the medicine of presumably of your clients, people. Right. Is there dissonance there or is it just, hey, we've tried other stuff. Let's try this now. No. Yeah. So that, so my, the shaman who trained me, now I was initiated by the Peruvian elders, but the shaman who trained me is Greek. And he, 17 years ago, was cured of kidney cancer in the Andes by the shamans. Mm -hmm. And they told him, you, your job is to take this to the English speaking world. 
And when he went back to them over the years of his training before he felt that he could uh, train people himself, he would ask about these questions of what is sometimes called cultural appropriation. And the shamans would look at him like they didn't know what he was talking about and say, but this medicine doesn't have a race. And what color, what color are you without this delusion? And so I think what's important is to put it in the cultural context. Like, I can go see a Chinese medicine doctor here in my cultural context and get tremendous healing from that because that's my cultural context. And so when someone comes to me for um, the, as a conduit of the healing of the Peruvian shamans, they're coming to me here the way I do it in our cultural, in this cultural context. Okay. And um, if they find themselves in Peru and that fits for them, then they're resonating with that cultural context too. So I, I do want to make that distinction that it's not like it's a hard line, mm -hmm. but you know what works for you and what doesn't. And you can, if you're, an example of this would be on a very superficial level. My son had a, he was having some really acute abdominal pain last week to the point where, and he's 11 and I couldn't tell what was going on, um, but it got to the point where I actually drove over to urgent care. And, but on the way over to urgent care, I called his homeopath, who's not my, I don't treat him myself. It's just like in any other practice. And she, you know, talked me through a remedy for what was going on while we were on our way to the doctor's office. But when we got to the doctor's office, he, when we got to the, to the, um, to the urgent care, he had this almost miraculous, I mean, this had been going on for hours. We had been at the beach. I had left the beach. I'd had them drive me off the beach in the four-wheeler because he was in such acute pain. And he took a remedy and the remedy clearly moved things. Um, but he also said to me, he was terrified to go into the urgent care. But he said, when you call Kelly, because I called her from the car, you know, so he could hear. When you called Kelly, I started to feel better because I trust Kelly. And I thought, that is such a big piece of the healing puzzle. It's not the whole thing, but our attitude towards the care we're getting is huge. So that's what I would say about cultural context. That's really interesting. It's also interesting that he refers to her as Kelly. <laughs> not, to, not to make everything about my own personal anecdotes, but one time I emailed my doctor mm -hmm. and I referred to him, I addressed him as Jeff. Yeah. And he didn't respond with like a correction. Uh-huh. I just wanted to see what, what would happen if I called yeah. my doctor by his first name. He didn't like correct me, but he made sure to address me as Mr. Gentleman. Yeah. In his response, not James. Yeah. And then sign it Dr. Myers. So obviously I think the answer is probably clear, but mm -hmm. why do you think doctors prefer to be referred to as doctor and homeopaths and other more personal, I suppose, practitioners? you know, on a first name basis? Yeah, well, so I think there are a couple of different pieces to that puzzle. One, just to get out of the way right up front, is that there are a lot of rules about what different practitioners are allowed to call themselves. Mm. The uh, medical associations have a stranglehold on the definition of care. And I was a part of an effort to get something called a safe harbor bill passed in Maine a couple of years ago, which protects 
non-licensable practices like mine from being accused of practicing medicine without a license if, as long as we say that's not what we're doing, which we're not. I don't do that. But so like the chiropractors are allowed to call themselves doctor first name, and but they're not allowed to call themselves doctor last name. And, uh, but my experience with medical doctors is that I call them by the first name. And if they don't like that, I find a different medical doctor because I do not think that authority is appropriate, but hierarchy, ego-driven hierarchy is not in medical care. And so I don't know what would be behind that for a doctor, but to me, that looks like insecurity. It's like, my oncologist, when I was first diagnosed with, with leukemia, one of the reasons that I think I went into the hospital was because I ended up with this oncologist who was this incredible man named Roger. And he said to me in the process, I do not want you to go into any treatment that you're not comfortable with. I mean, I called him like during my treatments, there was, cause I had to go, this took years, you know, at one point I didn't want to go into the hospital. I was scheduled to go in and I didn't want to go in. And I called him crying. And he said, if you are not ready to go in, I do not want you to go in. And he said, I'm, you're an expert on you. I'm an expert on this kind of treatment, but you're an expert on you and we can work together on this. And that, to me, that is a doctor who is totally confident with what he knows and what he doesn't and not trying to play God. How did you find a doctor like that? Was it just luck of the draw or? It was, yeah, it was totally. So I was diagnosed because my younger son was having uh, a lot of pain with teething. He was a baby. When I was first diagnosed, he was eight months old and uh, he was having a lot of teething pain. And so I'd taken him to see an osteopath who had a great reputation. She was the one who ended up introducing me to the woman who became my homeopath and is now Mm -hmm. my mentor and my homeopath. And while I was there at this integrative holistic practice, I got a blood test because I thought I had mono. I was so fatigued. I'd been a wreck since we had moved earlier in the year. And I thought I had mono. I was like, what is wrong with me? And I got this call back from a doctor I'd never even met saying, "Um, we looked at your blood work and we actually think you need to come in. So then I was like, well, what's going on? And I called them back and they're sort of hemming and hawing. And they're like, all right, well, this could be leukemia and we want you to see an oncologist. And I know a wonderful guy and I think he would be a good fit for you. It was completely an accident of fate and fortune mm. that I got connected with this man. And it really, it did save my life. And homeopathy saved my life too. But conventional medicine saved my life. It bought me the time to do the deeper healing. I didn't have time. I had to get those symptoms suppressed. And I think that's something that people get really hostile to when they want to do a natural approach. Like if sometimes you've got to cut a gangrenous part off so that your rest of your body can focus its energy on healing you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can heal it yourself, but uh, if you can't, then you're going to lose that race before you even get to do the deeper work. So I interviewed someone uh, a few weeks ago, and I think this was not recorded, so I'm not going to reveal who it was. But uh, he had bariatric surgery. He he Mm -hmm. was severely overweight. Yeah. So he felt the best thing for him was to um, take a surgical approach. So he had a, I think it was gastric bypass. I don't think it was lap band. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he took the weight off. He kept it off. Are things like that where it's sort of like a, I mean, I, 
I don't know if I consider obesity a disease or just a personal discipline thing. Sure. I know that a lot of the audience is going to say, oh no, that's the cheater way out mm-hmm. because libertarians tend to, tend, to, tend to say things like that. Right. What's your opinion on things like that? So in cancer treatment, a lot of naturopathic doctors who, so um, people will often go to a naturopath when they are diagnosed with cancer. And there are different kinds of naturopathy. I mean, as you were saying earlier, a lot of it is a lot of thinking sort of mechanically, but about systems and trying Mm -hmm. to treat those things naturally. But there's also an older form of naturopathy, which is more like homeopathy. But a lot of times the holistic practitioners who have a lot of experience with cancer will say, you need to have the debulking surgery to remove the tumor because it's consuming so much energy from your body that the, your body just doesn't have the resources to yeah. heal. And so I think of it along those lines. Like I can't know what is the energy, what is the susceptibility to obesity in somebody that can they can they heal that susceptibility and take off the weight at the same time? Or do they need to take off the weight mechanically, go to work on the susceptibility, understand that it's going to be a longer process in some ways, but they'll have bought their resources some time. So I don't have a lot of judgment about that because I think sometimes you come into the world with a lot of stuff to carry and can take a lot to get uh, to get to that path of healing. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad that you said that because, you know, you're coming from this angle, the holistic homeopathic angle, you're giving me different, you know, something different to think about, mm-hmm. which I always appreciate. You know, and I'm considering doing bariatric surgery just after having talked to that guy. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but I'm really scared of it. Like, I don't want to be like forever beholden to a medical practitioner because you know you have to go in for mm-hmm. vitamin injections or whatever it is. I don't. I don't know what the whole process is. So, I'm like of two minds on it, and yeah. I also don't know how it's going to impact my overall health. On one hand, you know, I'm. I have always been overweight. I don't feel full when I'm eating. I, it, it takes like, you know, maybe 20 minutes after I'm done eating that I realize that I'm full, mm-hmm. which is apparently some sort of ho- hormonal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it impacts my sleep. It impacts my performance at work. You know, I mean, it's being overweight or even severely obese, it, it impacts your entire life. Yeah. But then on the other hand, you hear, well, if it impacts your life, just change your life. Like, just become more disciplined. And, you know, I mean, there's something to be said for that, but I've tried that a lot. And, I mean, I don't know. There are lots of solutions to almost every problem. And Have you ever read a book called, oh, it's by Gay Hendricks, and it's called, I think it's Conscious Living by Gay Hendricks. Have you ever heard of Gay Hendricks? Uh Uh-uh. Okay. I haven't. So but I'm looking him up right now. Yeah. And so, and I I he is a a self-help personal development. Uh he's a background in in therapy. And he talks about his journey to under of understanding what was behind his um excessive weight gain and what the healing work was for him that was underneath actually like losing the weight and keeping it Mm -hmm. off. 
Because it's not, I think that this idea that you power through an intellectual and kind of self-punishing discipline to change your body is, I don't think that's fair to somebody. But I do think that there are other approaches to healing the deeper thing where you might end up not having to have surgery. And I'm not telling you, not telling you what to do, but I think that there are, there's this idea that it's one or the other. It's like, if you can't abuse yourself into losing weight, there's something wrong with you. And it's like, <laughs> it's not as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it is called conscious living. And actually it looks like he's, he's real into stoicism and Taoism, which are two things that I've been mm-hmm dabbling in so neat i'll make sure to put a link to that in the yeah in the show notes so all his books that i've read are great awesome really great personal development and he really digs into this idea that's like um loving yourself yeah and what that means and how that's really at the root of it once you can love yourself and you can speak the truth then you can speak the truth to yourself and to other people and then you can find a healthy path for yourself because you can see what's true <laughs> Well, and that's a great segue into the actual conversation that yeah. we were having on in the Tom Woods group, right? About loving yourself. Why don't can you riff on that a little bit? Uh, you kind of did it before we started recording, but uh, yeah, yeah. And I remember, if I remember correctly, you had put up a post saying, "What kind of advice would you give to somebody who was that's in right. this situation?" And you yeah. had described somebody who I think had some issues, maybe some weight issues, maybe some motivation issues, maybe some, yeah. you know, whatever. I put it in a bunch of groups. I was asking for advice on, especially lowering time preference for mm-hmm. like a young person who's new out of college and maybe hasn't even started their career yet and are feeling lost and, and just, you know, not sure what to do next. Yeah. And you got a lot of advice and a lot of it was beat yourself into submission. Yeah. <laughs> And I think the opposite of that is true. And so I said, the most important thing to do is really learn to love yourself. And that is no joke. That is not like a simple thing that you just do and then everything falls into place. Most of us are not, we don't grow up We don't grow up with the experience of unconditional love. Even if we grow up in loving households, there's still an expectation that what it means to be worthy is to meet other people's standards in this Mm -hmm. or that way. That our feelings shouldn't make other people uncomfortable and that other people get to set the bar and then we are supposed to meet that and that that's where reward comes from. And so for my children, I I put raising them to love themselves at the center of everything that I've done. And it has not always been easy because it's been in the center instead of math. It's been at the center instead of reading. It's oh. been at my son, my older son is still like getting the hang of writing his name in cursive. But his way of being in the world is so confident and so beautiful. He is able to be honest about what he perceives as true in a group of teens where he is the only one that thinks something different. And that to me is way more important than being able to write your name in cursive by the time you're 10. Mm -hmm. So I think that what I had to do very recently 
And this is very recent, like within the past couple of months. Uh, and as I said, I'm 44. Was I, I had read this lesson for years. I mean, I've been into self-help. When my older son was born, I started getting into some of this personal spiritual growth because I knew that I wanted to raise him differently. I was raised in a totally acceptable, conventional way. I come from a good home. It wasn't that at all. But I thought, there's got to be a way to do better. This is the biggest thing I'm ever going to do, and I can screw it up. So let's get it right. Um, and so I really dug into, well, what kind of changes do I need to make in myself? Because that's where it all starts. So for years, I've been reading about learning to love yourself. But um, as I said, he's, you know, he's 15 and a half. Just a few months ago, I had this experience. I went to bed and I had, I'm always trying to like be mostly paleo and get enough exercise and all this stuff. I mean, I'm naturally thin so I can get away with some stuff, but it's like my lifestyle is not, it's not like I'm living like Mark Sisson over here. And, um, so I went to bed and I had had like ice cream or beer or pizza or maybe all three, like kind of late in the evening. And I felt gross and like kind of just gross about my body. And I went to bed with this feeling of self-recrimination. And then lying there, I thought, what if I were just to say, because I'm a big fan of fake it till you make it, because I've done that with kids. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I know what I want to do. I don't know how to do it. So I'm just going to say like, the answer is yes, because I know that's the right answer. I'm going to figure out why. Yeah. Um, In reality therapy circles, they say practice the form until you gain the essence. It's kind of the same thing. Right. And I mean, that isn't that what we're doing with the Tao, you know? Yeah. And so I said, what if I just say, I love this part of my body. I love that I made that choice. I love me. It is really hard to really say that and mean it. And so I said it over and over and over and over again. I fell asleep saying it and I woke up and I believed it. I felt different and everything changed. My body changed. Like this was just a few months ago. Everything has changed. And I can go into the kitchen and be like, because I love myself, I'm not choosing ice cream right now. Or because I love myself, I am. Mm -hmm. And this whole idea of blame and recrimination, it's just gone. And so it's a practice that you have to go back to. And I don't, it's not complicated, but it's hard. And so I think if we just spent more time doing that, we could, other things would fall into place. Like other answers would appear. That's why I'm so focused on root principles. Because I don't know. I don't know what should happen in this moment or that moment. I, but I know that um, if I know what my principles are, I can respond. I think before we started too, we were talking about loving yourself and you said that it's impossible to, like the way that the culture, the predominant culture describes love yourself is more narcissistic than actual love of self. Yeah. What do you think the differences are there? I know that over the past year and a half, certainly a year ago and earlier on, like when everybody was locking down and hiding at home and all of these things and that all of these people who had been putting all kinds of posts on social media about like, love yourself, don't live in fear, be brave, have courage. We're all like, but, but also like lock yourself in your house and be afraid of your fellow man and assume that everyone is a vector of disease and that you're a vector of disease. So this idea that you're going through the world as a threat to everybody else, you go outside, you're going to kill somebody's grandma. It's like, this is not a path to self-love. 
And so I think there's a lot, there's this term you've probably heard, and I don't like these speaky terms, but I'm going to use it because I don't have a better word right now, <laughs> is uh, spiritual bypassing. And it's this idea, it's a mistaken practice of form where you deny the experience of the emotion and just jump to this, um, they might say more elevated or more evolved, uh, spiritually higher place. Because none of us wants to think that like, I'm not just there. But if you don't do that, it, like it's all the interim work. There's no there to get to. It's the interim work helps you move to that place faster each time. Um, and I still got totally triggered. The other night I had an experience of, I'm pretty good. Like I meditate daily. I am pretty good about stepping away from the keyboard, backing away, knowing when I'm feeling an elevated emotion that is going to get in the way of right action. But I got triggered in a conversation with some old friends where I just got really blindsided by somebody asking people to be vaccinated to go to her garden party. And I totally saw red. And I reacted, like I was reactive. I was like, this conversation's over. I'm not discussing this. And um, which was a lot less hostile and reactive than a lot of what you see. But I knew that the energy behind it was like, I'm angry and I'm putting that out there. And so it's like, I don't think there's any time when you don't feel that. The practice is getting to the point where it doesn't take over. And so I think there's this not true version of self-love, which is like skip past all the way you really feel. And it's really another uh, deference to authority of like someone else told me to love myself as opposed to what does it mean to learn to love myself? And, and how does that make me uncomfortable sometimes? Like I'm learning to speak what um, I think Gay Hendricks calls the microscopic truth, where in a moment of pain, I will say to somebody, the emotions that I'm experiencing right now are hurt and anger. I don't need you to fix it, but that's what I'm experiencing. Well, saying that often actually makes people really uncomfortable, which is why we grew up learning not to do that. <laughs> but I'm trying to learn to be without judgment in myself to do that and with others. So I don't know if that really answered the question, but it's something I've spent a lot of time looking at because I was shocked by the way that all of a sudden tuning into fear became like what you were supposed to do if you were compassionate. And that just didn't make any sense to me at all. So that's where I'm at with that. I don't understand. I don't, I think that what it is, is that there's a form of this is what it means to look like I'm spiritually adept. And if that form doesn't, uh, if there's, if the content isn't underneath the form, then mm -hmm. you get this ego-driven mess. So you mentioned elsewhere that you had lived in Eastern Europe right after the fall of the, of mm -hmm. the Berlin Wall. Is that right? Well, yes. So I lived in Hungary, like as a student. I went over mm -hmm. uh, on a student program and then again on my own on a grant in was it right after because that was what 89 and I was there in like 96 but it was early I mean it was still there was a lot of evidence of it in that post you mentioned culture of trust and mm -hmm. that's actually something that like Nick Gillespie at Reason has talked about a lot too do you see a breakdown of trust in the American culture 
And I mean, obviously the question answers itself, but yeah. what are the implications of that? Well, so I've been thinking a lot about trust and about how, and my husband and I were actually talking about this last night, that um, I don't, it may have been always true that we couldn't trust what we thought were trusted sources, but there's been, and there's really this feeling of having entered a fully postmodern moment where it's like, not only do I have to see it with my own eyes, but like I would have to do the research myself, define the parameters and do the research myself in order to trust that I knew what the result was. And so, because we're at this, also this very strange thing of um, there's outright lying and then there's lying by omission and lying by manipulating the information so grotesquely that you can't even trust something that's true because you don't know what it means. And that's when we really learn, oh my gosh, well, we narratorize everything. That's how we process narrative analogy and metaphor. That's how we live in the world. We live through stories. And um, so we don't know how to process raw data. We have to put it in a narrative. And when people are nefariously putting raw data into dishonest narratives towards ends that are not disclosed. I mean, one of the nice things right now is that the ends are often really disclosed. It's like these social media companies that are coming out and saying, we have to suppress this narrative because this is our objective and it doesn't matter whether it's true. This is what we're doing. It's kind of a relief because there are all these years of being gaslit that that wasn't happening when you knew it was. So that having completely broken down, I think we are, we're on the verge kind of of one of two things. And I don't have any idea what that means in terms of timing or what it looks like on the other side. But I kind of make this joke about cryptos. I don't know if this joke, but I don't understand anything about cryptos. Like I've read all the books about blockchain and I get whatever it says in the books and that's as far as it goes. So like I can sort of describe a blockchain and all that stuff, but I can't possibly argue with you about Bitcoin or Ethereum or Monero and should you have these things or not and where are they going to go and what do they mean and do they really... Uh, describe a true alternative or is it all going to get captured? Is it all just the NSA to begin with? I have no idea. But one of the things that I think about cryptos is that because they have this model of decentralized person-to-person processing where you don't have to have trust, you just have to have trade. I say, well, if the human race is going to evolve into a good place and a good social space because we can't stay like we are, like the mass, you know, it's, we've gone through whatever this thing was, we're ready for a new thing, whatever that's going to look like. Either it goes to some beautiful new person-to-person trust-based thing that Bitcoin might be a metaphor for, or we end up in like a Hunger Games scenario, like fiat currency might be a metaphor for. So I'm diversified in my portfolio. <laughs> and, but I think that I really feel very positive because I love the power of fear. I learned this concept from Vivian Dittmar about the power of fear. She talks about the compass of emotions and what different emotions mean. And Anger is the emotion that we feel when something needs to change. And sometimes that's something in us and sometimes it's something outside. Um, But anger is like an active emotion. Okay, I'm angry. Something's got to happen. And maybe it's just I need to get myself together. But And then there's fear, 
And fear is when we confront the unknown. She says, it's not when we confront danger because life would be way too dangerous if we waited to feel fear of danger until we were actually confronted with it. It's a fear of unknown. And the power of the unknown is that all of the amazing and beautiful and unpredictable things are in that same place where all the scary and horrifying things are. They're all out there in the unknown. And I think that the universe is benevolent if I choose to live as if it is benevolent. Because what other way? I mean, the alternative to that is nihilism. And so I choose to believe that we are going into a good place, but that my job is to exercise my will to get to that good place by being in integrity. Does it happen in my lifetime? Do I end up in a concentration camp first? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not in charge of that, but I am in charge of whether I stay in integrity and in that belief that it's, it's to the good. So that's what I think about trust. Like I do think it's, I think what's broken down is the trust in authority. And I don't think that's a bad thing because we no longer live in a system of earned authority. We live in a system of imposed authority. And that's, that's not, that's narcissism. Yeah. And narcissism keeps coming up. So would it be accurate to say that you think that distrust in authority is a positive good probably? But distrust in one another is not only not good, but it's also probably going to be fleeting, that maybe we will rebuild an actual culture of trust and not just a culture of trust and authority? Yeah, I. so yes, I think blindly trusting authority is a very bad idea and authority should be constantly questioned. Mm. I also think that there is such a thing as earned authority and earned authority is part of the division of labor mm-hmm. and it's okay to trust in an authority who has earned your trust because, I mean, that was the, that's what I think has been so, part of the reason I think that everything's gone to such a, like, to such a disaster in this past year is that the cognitive dissonance, like maybe for you and I with our background of not, I mean, so let me back up to 1986. In 1986, the Challenger disaster happened. I don't know if you remember, that was. I was, I think I was three, so I was a little bit too young. But yeah, I was in third grade and I was there. I knew mm-hmm. Krista McAuliffe's son and I was, we had gotten this big sponsored trip to is that, go. Sorry, is that the one that had a school teacher? And is that yes. who you were just talking about? Okay. That's what I was talking to. Yeah, okay. So, so this was this big PR stunt under the, you know, the NASA and, uh, that they were going to put this teacher in space, all of these school kids, these, she was a teacher of high school, but her son was in third grade. We were all going to go and watch the ship go to space. And that was just going to be this exciting, warm and fuzzy, like late Cold War kind of yay thing. And uh, it did not go like that, of course. And so I remember, and I certainly, I had these biases, but I was like nine at the time. I remember being so angry because it was obvious to me immediately that this was the government's fault, that somebody had like, that other, like for no reason that had anything to do with anything that was real and human for the people who were directly experiencing this, there had been this 
rush to put a civilian in this situation and then to send the shuttle up when the weather was bad because the clock was ticking and it was millions of dollars a day and they had all these kids down there on the in the stands and this thing had to happen and i thought this is the government killed these people and so i'm i come from a long tradition of not trusting authority that doesn't deserve to be trusted. I was not a great student. I had a really bad teacher that year. I have like often had problems with authority. Let me just say, it's not like, uh, I won't, I won't pretend this isn't, isn't also me, but I think what happened for a lot of people this year who weren't already having that bias was that all these authorities that they thought they could trust started to betray them. Mm -hmm. And when someone betrays you, the way you protect yourself is to believe it, like to start sort of gaslighting yourself and turning in on yourself because the cognitive dissonance of I've been lied to by someone I trusted is so awful. Now for me, I was like, I don't trust these people. So I didn't have any of the experience of that, but I think that's why, but there were, you know, I mean, I did think, I did kind of still think that I didn't realize how, I mean, now I realize that elections are not trustworthy, but I didn't, I just hadn't really thought about that that much. I don't know who won the election and I frankly don't care. I just think that it's really obvious that that none of this is real. It's all a show. Um, But this idea of interpersonal trust, this is so beautiful that this is happening because we now are building these, our network had gotten too big. The country is so big. How can you have a relationship of trust with that many millions of people, but these little communities are cropping up. I mean, we met on the Tom Woods show and, you know, I met somebody on the Tom Woods show who came to visit my town on vacation because he just happened to be up here. And I had him over for a drink with his wife and kids. And it was lovely. I mean, this is someone I've never met, but we met in a small enough community that we could have a connection of trust. And I'm seeing that happen everywhere. It's like the secession is not going to be geographic. It's going to be cultural. It's happening like in layers in place. I said to my husband last night, it's like, I think that we can have, increasingly we'll see like parallel institutions. That's fine. I don't want anything to do with your schools. I don't want to pay for them. I don't, not you personally, but like, I don't want to pay for them. I don't have to go to them. That's no problem. Like you can say your children aren't welcome in my schools. And I can say, that's fine. That's wonderful. I love that. You build a school for you. And um, I think I think that's happening. I feel it. That's something I've been talking about a lot lately is uh, the tendency of institutions to become about the institution rather than the mission that the institution was founded to embark mm-hmm. on. So, right. I mean, you know, the Libertarian Party comes to mind just because I'm a member of it and I swim in Libertarian pools, I guess, circles. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, don't <laughs> right. the, I don't know what the metaphor yeah. is. Anyway, you know, I mean, once a party or whatever mission-driven organization has been around for several decades, you get people at the top of that organization who care more about the the organization itself. And right. it's, you know, continued existence uh, than like sort of the telos of that organization. Right. So, you know, I mean, maybe that's what the, maybe that's what the, you're, you're right. Maybe this, the secession won't be, you know, well, t- Texas is its own country now. Maybe it right. really is just the, the Texas department of education is one 
institution among many institutions. Like I, you know, I was I was yeah. Jesuit educated, which is a whole other institution, but it was completely regulated by the Texas Education Association. We had to we had to sign a sign a TEA form every year to uh, you know affirm that we, that we were that we were you know educated according to Texas education standards. I don't really know what mm-hmm. it was for. I just remember having to sign it. Maybe that's what the breakdown looks like. It's just in certain areas and certain cultures, we have competition. And, you know, I mean, obviously Bitcoin is the the obvious thing that everybody talks about with competing currencies. So, yeah, I mean, that to me is the most optimistic way of looking at all this. And there's a lot of us, I mean, there are a lot of people out there starting to have these conversations. I think this whole deplatforming thing has been fabulous because yeah. it's really drawn attention to that. I mean, certainly to kind of bring a little bit of a full circle, there the what I do is considered alternative medicine. You know, that's mm-hmm. what they call it. But there's actually an alternative healthcare system arising. And it includes MDs and DOs and RNs and NPs who don't want to be in the system anymore. Um, I mean, you know, I remember when they started mandating all flu shots for all these doctors and nurses and the nurses were freaking out because a lot of them didn't want the flu shots because many of them see that in some people they are not a good idea and they didn't want to be forced into them. And, um, you know, now that's happening with the COVID shot. And so these people are saying, I don't want to be in this system. So it's not just this idea of alternative as like we have a different um, way of approaching medicine, but it becomes an alternative of like, we're just an alternative. It's just a different community. It's just a different culture. We no longer have a common culture. That's what became very clear to me Mm -hmm. last spring. I was like, we don't have a common, we don't have a shared culture anymore. I don't, wear a mask. And this person that lives a half a mile from me wears a mask and we're interacting and I don't know what language we speak. And with that's a loss of common culture. And that was tremendously traumatic because that I wasn't prepared for. Government, whatever. Mm-hmm. But like to lose that common culture and to start to feel like, I don't know who I can trust, like who would get in my corner. And that I think will, it's just going to grow up in this different and organic way. And it's almost like its own sort of underground network. One phenomenon I've noticed is that, you know, a year ago, people were getting so heated in their mask versus unmasked, lockdown versus mm-hmm. don't lock down arguments on Facebook that people were unfriending each other left and right. Mm-hmm. You know, I just don't need that in my life. Well, you know, whether it's someone who wants to kill grandma in my life or whether it's someone yeah. who wants to put me out of business in my life. And now I'm seeing, I'm seeing people uh, refriending the people who they unfriended last year. Yeah. Whether it's because they've calmed down or come around to that other person's position or whatever, it seems to be reducing to a simmer at this mm-hmm. point, which might be optimistic. Then again, it might also just be a sign that we're going back to the what low trust normal that we had before, like the low trust just came to a head. Yeah. So I don't know if that's a fix or a Band-Aid or neither, but it's definitely something that's happening. Well, you know, and it's funny, I had this experience the other night in this text conversation, there was a group of people in this conversation Mm -hmm. because we've been invited to this party and then this thing happened and it, um, one of these people is another old college friend of mine and I 
said, this conversation's over. And he lashed out and said, you can block my number. And I said, man, I'm not unfriending you. I'm not having this conversation here now. My arms are open to you. Mm. I'm not doing this. I'm walking away. And I feel one of the things that I've been talking to people about, like all these restaurants putting this, this medical apartheid thing out there. And I just say, if you back someone into a corner when they are experiencing cognitive dissonance, then they lock down on that cognitive dissonance. But if you just create the space, because we've all done it. I mean, I've dug in on things that were just total crap. Um, If you just create the space to be like, look, what we are in together is all the time realizing, oh, I was wrong about that. I was wrong about that. And if we can just be like, okay, I'm not okay with this thing, but I'm okay with the fact that there's, like that things can change in the future, mm-hmm. um, then you don't have to deal with this friending, unfriending, friending, unfriending. I think it takes a lot of, it's like, I, I just, you know, I feel bad for people that end up in that dynamic where they're unfriending people because then you've got this cognitive dissonance. It's like, well, do I come crawling back? Yeah. Like, you know. I was in a conversation with a military veteran who happens to be running for Congress as a libertarian. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how old he is, but he's older than older than us. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of got that, you know, rah, rah, America, save the world from Hitler kind mm-hmm. of mentality, even as a libertarian. And yeah. I didn't realize that. And so we were in an internal chat, you know, just a group chat for LP stuff. Mm-hmm. And I used the phrase murder cult, which is what Shane Hazel, a libertarian podcaster and mm-hmm. frequent office runner, terms not just the military but like the whole u.s government complex where the the whole thing it's just like a culture of death and this military vet he took exception to that he really didn't like my use of the term murder cult and rather than explain it rather than say hey look we're all on the same side if you win this congressional race you're going to vote against every war that comes across your desk so like you know Mm -hmm. great let's let's do it i'll i'll tone down my rhetoric and you keep doing you Mm -hmm. i dug in so hard and plus there were like other people in the group who are in sort of the same libertarian circles that mm-hmm. that we're in who also dug in. And so he felt really ganged up upon mm-hmm. and he was going to leave the party. He was going to run as an independent and and screw all these guys. Uh, they're, they're calling me a murderer. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a kind of long heartfelt apology on his campaign page because mm-hmm. that's not, First of all, it's just being a dick. I don't I don't want to be a dick to people. Right. But also it's, you know, that's not how you win friends and influence people. Like you don't you don't change minds by calling them murderers, even right. if it wasn't my intent to call him a murderer. So anyway, yeah. I think it's probably a good time to wrap it up. I yeah, really appreciate so your time fun. today. It's been great. Can, can people find you online? Do you do yeah. like virtual sessions or anything like that? Well, yeah. So I work mostly online because I have clients all over the world. Nice. And um okay. So if you're in Australia, we have to do like 5.30 p.m. on a Sunday night or something. But um, I, uh, yeah, so I am online and my website for my business is inner, I-N-N-E-R-C-S-E-A, homeopathy, H-O-M-E-O-P-A-T-H-Y.com. That's where I am. Inner C homeopathy. And I'm also Sarah Thompson and I'm on Facebook and my Facebook, Sarah Thompson, which I stay on because for my business is my business. Sure. 
Why inner C? Is there a short answer to that? Yes. So the short answer to that, I would say, is that when the the vitality of the person, we're mostly water. And mm-hmm. that I think the water that connects all the cells in our body, information travels that way. And that's why when we take a, a medicine, even a drug, you know, aspirin or whatever, how is that aspirin getting to all the different parts of your body? It's traveling. It's the information is traveling through the water in your cells. And so I think that the inner sea is where that's where we go to find our healing. Love it. Okay, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. And thank I you will, so much. Uh, talk to you soon. Yeah, this was great. Thanks, James. All right. Thanks again to Sarah for joining me today. And thanks to you as always for tuning in. Don't forget, if you are not signed up at blackbirdpodcast.com, you are not getting all of the content that I produce. Head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up with your email address to receive all of these podcast episodes along with written content as it comes out. And if you're feeling generous, slide me a couple bucks a month and I will send you early access to these interviews, unedited, uncut, and they include the pre-show banter that takes place between me and the guests before I formally welcome them into the show, which is oftentimes pretty interesting stuff. So once again, go to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up with your email address, or if you want to get that premium bonus content, send me seven bucks a month and I will send it your way. Thanks again for tuning in. That is another episode of Blackbird in the can. Until the next one, live free.